One of the things that made the Bible come alive for me more than any other as I was growing up is when the Bible went from the book that I studied in church to the collection of books that was written by real people in real situations. And one of the things I like to remind us about Philippians every week that we open it is that this was not written by a hipster Christian in a coffee shop listening to Hillsong United while he drank his strong coffee beside his hot tea to soothe his throat and was what you guys know hipster Christianity. Okay, because all of you are at the 1030, this is kind of your demographic because none of the hipsters come to the 830 because they sleep in. And so it's like... Um, we have this view of Christianity that somebody went into a room and said, ooh, the Bible, I want to write this and tell people who God is. No, Paul wrote Philippians from a prison cell in Rome to a church in Philippi that he founded 10 years earlier about real problems. One of them being the fact that he was in prison and the church that he founded was questioning their investment into him because now he's in prison. How are you supposed to get the gospel out to a city that has imprisoned you? And he's like, the gospel is not chained even if my arms are chained. The gospel is going out in a better way than it would have if I was free. And for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I've got to balance the idea that I might die in this prison cell and I need their faith to continue to grow. And all throughout this real letter written by a real person, you have a lot more in common with the people who wrote the Bible than you think you do. We're reading 2,000 years later and going, okay, how does this speak to our lives today? And it speaks the same. Paul said, whatever happens, whether I live or die, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the central idea of Philippians, that our response to the message of Jesus should look like we actually believe what we say we believe. And everything after that line in Philippians chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, everything after that point is about living a life worthy of the gospel. So last week's message was about our relationships with one another. And I believe God moved in this place in a powerful way because many of us were set free from the lie that we have to earn our internal value comparing ourselves in our relationships around us and one-upping other people to get filled up on the inside. And most of us spend our entire lives on relationships where we're just trying to get ourselves to look a certain way, not even really to accomplish something, but to achieve something on the inside. And Jesus sets us free from that because Jesus' model for relationships was, I don't need other people to fill me because my heavenly father has filled me and he's filled me up so much so that I can pour it out in humility. And the more I pour it out in humility, the more God fills me and lifts me up even more. New model for your relationships. Don't think about yourself. Self-forgetfulness. Pour out what God has poured into you, and you will be filled with more. And then we get to verses 12 through 13. And I'm only going to talk about two verses today. If you have your Bible, hold it up all over this place. Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. If you're holding it up, look at the person next to you. Say, I love my Bible. Keep holding them up. If you're not holding up a Bible... Feel our Christian judgment on you right now. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Yeah, you won't forget next week. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It's okay. It's going to be on the screens for all the JV Christians. I'm just kidding. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm in like savage mode today, and I love it. I love it. Only going to hit on two verses. This is going to be the shortest collection of verses of any sermon this summer. This summer, we start at the beginning of Philippians. We're gonna end the summer at the end of Philippians, step-by-step journey through this letter, but we have to take every word that we are reading today so carefully. Philippians 2, verse 12. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That's it. That's all we're talking about today. And we're going to read it two or three times just to make sure that the weight of these massively important sentences actually sinks in. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, always look at what was written previously. What is the therefore to my whole sermon last week? So if you didn't hear the sermon last week, this message is gonna be incomplete without that one. Paul's going, in light of living with the humility of Christ, in light of living like that, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, 
Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, because my absence might continue. I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but i got to make sure that my church, my favorite church in Philippi, knows what their life should look like with or without me, and it looks like this. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Part five of our Philippian series is going to be titled, straight from these verses, Work Out Your Salvation. Work out your salvation. Look at somebody around you and say, work it out. Work it out. We're going to get a workout in church today. And before we talk about what it means to work out your salvation or why Paul uses the words fear and trembling, you always have to take a moment when you use a word that a lot of Christians overly use and explain it to people who actually come from real life and walk into church and go, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I have no idea what you guys are excited about. Please tell me what these words mean, like evangelism and discipleship and salvation is one of them as well. Salvation is simply a word that means saved. So what exactly are we celebrating being saved for? And people say, I got saved by grace. What were they saved from? Well, the salvation that we are talking about is the salvation from the human condition, which is eternal damnation, separation from God, and ultimately death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So when sin entered into the world, the main consequence of that is that human beings die. I got a message this morning from a college student in our church whose father passed away this morning from cancer. The reason why that happens and why that 100% effective reality for humanity is actually going to happen, unless Jesus comes back, it's going to happen to everyone in this room, is not because death is naturally a part of life. Death is not a part of life. Death is the opposite of life. Death is the consequence of our sinful state. So the evil in our hearts that none of us really asked for and really needed to conjure up in our lives, it's just there. Like, you don't have to teach my daughters how to misbehave. They just know, especially Aniston. She just, no one taught you how to, last night in Publix, this girl lost her mind over a sugar cookie. Yeah, they give you the free sugar cookie. This is Aniston's fit last night. She wanted two, not one. And so not only am I not grateful for the one that you're giving me, I want two. And when you don't give me two, I'll throw a fit at you. I'll throw, it's how some of you treat God. Um, I, and I'm just making this up as I go. Sermon's coming based on Aniston's fit. I mean, no one taught her how to act like that. No one teaches evil. No one raises up dictators that exterminate people. This happens naturally. That's just a reflection of the human condition of sin. And even if you don't believe in words like sin and the Bible, you can agree that humanity is evil. You can agree that death is a tragedy. But what you need to agree on is that the ultimate consequence of sin is not even death and not even evil actions. It's separation from our heavenly father who made us. The consequence of sin is that God can't be around that. He made us for himself and he cannot be around us because we're sinfully flawed. And his method of salvation was sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And when he came down, he named him Jesus. The name Jesus is the Greek word for salvation. The Hebrew is Joshua. It just means salvation. This is our Savior's name. So when God sends Jesus, he says, hey, you're not going to be able to live a good enough life to balance out that evil because evil isn't what you do. It's who you are. It's actually taking root in who you are. Well, no, it's not. Like, I do good and evil. I go back and forth. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you're going to die, and I'm going to die, and that death is just a revealer of our condition. And the only way to remedy the condition is with resurrection power where the perfect son of God, salvation, came down from heaven, lived a perfect life that we could never live, died a sinner's death, that we couldn't die. Think about this. I thought about this this week. Even if we died on a cross, it wouldn't be enough. Like the reason why hell is eternal is because the wrath of God is never quenched if it was unleashed on us. That means that if God punished you for your sins for a billion years, you would still be as guilty as when he started. He needs forever to punish you because his glory is that majestic and you are that awful and that flawed and that dead. And I love that in six hours, 
Jesus did what we couldn't do with six billion years. Wrath of God, paid in full, raised from the dead. Now the life of Jesus lives on the inside of us. Same power that conquered the grave lives in us, empowers us to live this life now, and gives us a seal, a promise for later that we will spend eternity, not dead, not in the grave, and not in hell, but in heaven forever with God. This is what it means to be saved. This is why we gather on Sundays. If you're not excited about that, you don't need to come here. That's salvation. That's what we're fired up about. That's what we're singing about today. Now, Paul is saying that you need to take that salvation and work it out with fear and trembling. Now, those words, work it out, it means produce. Paul's like, activate, like, you need to make salvation. And we're going to talk about why that's impossible later in the sermon. But I want to deal with this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to deal with the problem that it causes if it stands by itself. So let's put up Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, part B. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you just took that statement and interpreted that in our language, you should be very afraid. If it stops right there, you should freak out. Because that means, hey, God saved you, but you got a responsibility to do some work. you got a responsibility to partner with him. And your responsibility is to do it with fear and trembling. When you read fear and trembling, you're like, oh, I need to obey God. I need to do all this stuff because he might change his mind about saving me if I don't partner with him. And some of you, that's the exact version of Jesus or of religion that you got stuffed down your throat in your church or in your family or in your background growing up. It's this fear-based, you have to be afraid and try to earn God's approval. Even though Jesus died for you, oh, the fact that he died for you should make you very afraid. How dare you continue to disobey him when he died for you? Work it out with fear and trembling. But that's not the end of the statement. Don't put a period where God put a comma, ever, ever especially on a Friday when Jesus is dead. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. See, salvation has three parts to it, past, present, future. We sang a song that was birthed out of our church called Constant to start this gathering. And that was from Hebrews where the statement about Jesus says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So is salvation, meaning you were saved yesterday. If you've been saved by God, there was probably a time in your past that you can mark on your story and go, that's when I got saved. But the Bible teaches that you were saved past, present, future, and they're all equal. It means you were saved, you are currently being saved, and you will be saved. And each one of those are equally true. And if salvation is actually past, present, future, it means right now the God of the universe is working on the inside of your spirit to will and to act. It means God didn't just save you and leave you. He saved you and filled you to be saving you right now by changing your behavior, your thoughts, and your emotions about your everyday life in the here and now. It means you work it out, God works within. You work it out and God's working within. And suddenly there's this duality to my life where I've got to responsibility to work out my salvation and God's working within me and it's sort of this mixture of the two but it's this glorious reality where salvation is actually coming to be in my life and that's great news and I could stop the sermon right now and go you work it out and God works within let's pray and have a great day but this is where the God of the universe willed and acted in me this week to open my eyes to see the dilemma that so many of you are wrestling with in this room, and I'm so excited to unleash it. It's one thing to say, God works within us to finish what he started, and we work it out in real time, and both are equally true, and it produces salvation. But it's a whole nother thing to actually live that out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and understand what it means for your everyday life. In other words, I'm asking the question, is anybody in this room confused about what their role is and what God's role is in a given day? Like, honestly, I can explain theologically all day long what it means for God to work within and for me to work it out. But practically speaking, like on Thursday, what's your responsibility and what's God's responsibility? 
What is he looking at you going, I want you to do this? And what should you be looking at him and going, you need to show me this, you do this. And it creates all these confused Christians that are sitting in front of me right now who get used to all these cliches that say contradicting things. Like, what do we say? We say, you just need to let go and let God. It's up to him. He's God, and he's within you. Let go. Let it go, Elsa. Let it go. It's planted. Elsa is as deeply rooted in me as some of these verses, all right? Let it go. Let go and let God. And then on the same breath, we go, no, you don't, you don't need to let it go. You need to hold firmly to the word of life. That's what you need to do. You need to hold on to God's word. You need to activate your will. You need to obey God. God's not just going to do it for you. You need to work it out. He's working with them, but don't think, you have a job to do. You have a responsibility, and it creates all these kind of confused Christians who are like, what do I need to let go and let God, and what do I need to hold on to? Like, what, what is he doing, and what do I do, and how do the two conflict, and how do the two partner? And, and people who are confused about God's will, this is the worst part. Try to talk to a young person about this discovering and discerning the will of God. And Christians will give them two different sets of advices that are totally conflicting. One side will say, hey, you just need to calm down. You just need to let God define your steps. You know, the, the man plans his steps, but the Lord, it is the Lord whose plan that prevails. You need to wait on the Lord. You need to take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. You need to sit there. And until God speaks, you go, we won't move without you. We're just going to wait on you, God. We won't move. But then you see the other side of that, and equally passionate Christians will be like, God's not just going to do it for you. You need to move. What are you doing sitting there? You need to get a job. You need to call people. You need to activate your faith. God doesn't move until we move. God moves when we move. I'm referencing literal songs that we sing and sermons that I preach. And so you're like, I'm a sheep and I need to wait for my shepherd to speak, but I need to move before he speaks. Or is it as he speaks? And what do I do? And what does he do? And some of you are discovering the will of God and you're so frustrated today because Christians have given you advice on two sides of the exact same paradox. And you're like, what does God want me to do? And what am I supposed to do? And then you got Paul who interrupts this equation and he says things that make it even more confusing. And I'm not even just talking about Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. I'm talking about like Galatians 2:20. You don't got to turn there. We're going to put it on the screen. Look at this. Look at what Paul says. He says, "I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." Look at that. That's good Christian doctrine right there. I've been crucified with Christ. I died with him. I gave up my old life. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Watch this. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wait, bro, I thought you were dead. Like, I, thought you were, I thought you were crucified with Christ, and the life you live, is, no, it's not me. It's Christ in me. The life I now live. Wait, no, no, you can't be living if you're, so you're like kind of dead? Are you really dead? If it's still you living, like, what happened to you? Did you die and rise? Like, and what's Jesus? Is it, like a, is it like a you and Jesus? You change your name? Like it's half you. It's half Jesus. It's not the only moment he does stuff like this. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's like everything that I am is by the grace of God. It's all God's grace. Now, here's the thing. I worked harder than everyone, okay? But it wasn't me. It was grace within me working. Is anybody else in the room hearing these statements and like, who, who, who is it? What am I supposed to do? And what is he supposed to do? And I'll tell you what we have remedied it with, what we say. We usually say, here's what you need to do. Here's what Paul's saying. You, you need to do your best and leave the rest up to God. Like, I try as hard as I can, and then I trust God with the results. I, I do my part, God does his part, and it's this glorious partnership of ownership on both sides, and it creates a Christian life. And I think, I think some of that's true, but anytime I'm studying for something I'm about to teach you, I don't just study it to make sure that it's true in doctrine. I study you guys to make sure that what you're believing in your mind is producing the peace in your life that these verses claim that they give you. And so when you take a doctrine that's true about God and apply it to your life and it doesn't produce in your life what it promises, it's not that something was wrong in the doctrine, it's that you didn't notice something that was missing from your understanding of it. In other words, I'm seeing a lot of people try to live this, oh, I try and I trust, 
I do my best and leave the rest up to God, and I don't look at their life and see peace. I don't look at their life and see confidence. I don't look at their life and see worship. I look at their life and see angst. I look at their life and see worry. I see fear and an unnecessary fear. I see a lot of what should be the opposite of a Christian life. And so I just ask the question, is there something we're missing as we're trying to lovingly partner with God in our salvation being produced? Is there something that we're not seeing about this equation? And then God dropped this gold from his word into my mind. It is the very phrase that connects our responsibility and God's responsibility. And when you read it, you're kind of like, why is that even necessary for those words to be there? And I believe the reason why it's necessary is because Paul wants you to get thrown off by them. It's the words fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation. That's one part of the verse. And then the other part, for God is working in you to will and to act for his good purpose. The words in the middle are fear and trembling. Our fear and trembling at the presence of God is what marries our responsibility to God's responsibility. And it sounds awful. It sounds, what do you mean I need to be afraid of God? You tell me every week, I have breath in my lungs for my heavenly father to love me. I don't feel really loved right now when you're telling me to be afraid. I feel like I'm in like a horror movie. Anybody like scary movies in this room? Anybody at all? They're demonic, so you just admitted to something you need to repent for. And uh, that, I mean, you, you know why we like scary movies? We like the sensation of fear within the context of safety. So we like the safety of popcorn in our hand in a movie theater and the emotion of fear on the screen. And, the only, and that's why the only movie that has ever really freaked me out is The Ring. Because that, anybody ever seen that little girl, the pale little girl who was dead? She not only, she not only comes alive, she climbs through the screen. This freaked me out at 12 years old. She steps through the TV screen in the movie and for the, like, I'm 12 years old and I was freaked out of my mind because I was like, see, that's the one thing that crosses the boundary of like, I'm not safe because she could get through here. That girl could do anything. Like, I'm still freaked out of this to this day. It's the only, it's the only movie that has ever freaked me out. And then I'd stop watching horror movies because I, it's all Jesus. And so, um, whoa, if you don't want, fine, we all got our issues, whatever. Anyway, some of y'all who are laughing go, yeah, you need to stop watching those horror movies. I see you in your bachelor. All right, I see you. So you want to know why we enjoy that though? It's, it's the feeling, the sensation of fear in the context of safety. That's what God has in mind for fear and trembling in his presence. That we have a sensation of awareness of his presence, but we also have a safety of knowing I'm his. If God dropped his presence in you, God always finishes what he starts. He has never put his Holy Spirit inside of someone that he did not finish the same work. What's ACC's theology? Perseverance of the saints, big part of it. Once saved, always saved. God sends his Holy Spirit on the inside of you. That spirit's never getting withdrawn. God doesn't change his mind, even if you do. When you're saved, God will finish what he starts, and that creates a safety in you, but should also make you a little bit afraid. And the word tremble means to flinch, like to get thrown off a little bit, like, oh my gosh, God, God lives on the inside of my spirit. And so it's not a threat against you. See, Paul could have made this sway one way or the other. Look up here and do not miss this. I think this is so profound. God, Paul could have said, work out your salvation with peace and security and put it all on God. He could have said, work out your salvation with peace and security because God always finishes what he starts. So you can just sit on the sidelines and sit this one out. And this is how a lot of Christians live their lives. They're like, well, I know I need to obey God. I know I need to work on my stuff, but come on, grace. It's by grace I've been saved. And God's gonna finish what he starts and I'll just kind of sit on it here. It's, a, it's an abuse of grace. It leans toward, well, God works in me, so it's whatever. But the other side of that is religion. Paul could have said, work out your salvation with effort and striving. Try. Like, yes, God saved you, but come on. He needs an effort from you. He needs something from you. And then the verse would have leaned the other way in our working out, our spiritual fitness, our ability. But he doesn't use either of those terms. He doesn't say, work out your salvation with peace and security. He doesn't say, work out your salvation with trying, with effort and striving. He says, work it out with fear and trembling. And I believe the reason why is because Paul knows 
the marriage between your gospel-driven effort and God doing the work from within you is awestruck awareness. When you see fear and trembling, I want you to think awestruck awareness. In other words, you don't have the ability to live out your salvation without an awareness of your salvation that's rooted in worship. Paul wants you to condition your heart to where you're once again aware of what you've been saved from and what you've been saved for and most of all, who you've been saved by. And Christians have a tendency to veer away from God, not because they become increasingly more disobedient. It's because they become increasingly more distracted. You work out your salvation, and God works on the inside of you when you cultivate a heart that's willing to fear and tremble. It's about awe. It's about wonder. Here's why. If I lost you, I got one sentence, one sentence, the whole sermon in one sentence. Here it is. I lose my ability to work out my salvation when I lose my awareness of my salvation. Let that sink in. I lose my ability to work out my salvation when I lose my awareness of my salvation. The only ability that you have to live out the Christian life is to be filled with and overflowing with joy that you're actually a Christian again. Like the joy of your salvation wasn't a moment at a Promise Keepers conference 20 years ago. It wasn't a moment where Beth Moore made it all made sense. It wasn't a youth camp moment. It's a day after day commitment to being in all of God. Because if I'm not in all of God, I'm going to be in all of myself or in all of somebody else or in all of somebody else's stuff. And my worship of that stuff will replace my rightful worship of him. And you don't realize, but God has wired you to live an obedient life out of the overflow of grateful worship. So if you obey God without grateful worship, you are now doing it out of duty and disobeying God as you try to obey God with your will. Unless your heart is in awestruck awareness. What is awestruck awareness? It means to be dumbfounded that God loves you again. It means to be overwhelmed by his power. It means to be in a position where you're like, I can't believe I'm still in this. I can't believe he did this. And to be overflowing with more joy than when you were originally saved. How many of you have been following Jesus for a long time and you like fantasize about previous seasons in your faith? You think about, man, I was so much more passionate back then. I was so much more in, in awe of God. Now I've just, I've just become increasingly more distracted and it's harder to focus. What you're, what you're not understanding is that even though you're growing in your knowledge in your faith, faith will never be more simple than childlike awe of your heavenly father going, oh my gosh, you love me, and it doesn't happen by effort. You guys know we've been in this season of prayer and fasting, and on Thursday nights, we've been getting about 100 of us together to pray. We've invited everybody, but um, it's been cool to see people get consistent with that, and I know schedules and different things going on. It's really early. We just try to make it work for the most amount of people. We're going to do a season of fasting again together when we have our own building, and we're going to meet like every day. It's going to be awesome, and also, we love the rhythm of doing Thursday night prayer so much. We might just make that a permanent Thursday thing in the life of our church. We're talking about that right now. It's powerful, but Thursday, I worked on this sermon all day, and I was fasting, not eating food, so spiritually speaking, I was in a great place. All I did all day was pray, read the Bible, and not eat. And I was not working out my salvation because I didn't have fear and trembling. There was no joy. If you talked to me, you'd have been like, what's wrong with you? And it's not just that I was hungry. And I was. Um, it, it was that uh, I just, I don't know, something's off, something's off. So then we're at the prayer meeting. And there's a man in our church who starts praying, and he starts recalling some verses from Psalms that say, God, when we consider the vastness of this universe, when we consider the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet, we consider, like, outer space, who are we that you are mindful of us? And he brought up this verse, this is such a cool verse, where it says that angels are baffled that God would consider us. Do you know, like, in heaven, angels talk to each other about, like, can't believe he loves them that much. He is crazy about them. And we know that's because he has put his image in us, only creation for God to do that for. Angels are talking about how much God loves you, and it throws them off. 
And suddenly, I'm, I'm, I'm in this clubhouse listening to him pray, and awestruck awareness happens. I'm like, oh, man, you love me that much. Fasting didn't do it. Sermon prep didn't do it. Doing the religious steps didn't do it. It was a worshipful openness where I was like, God, I'm making room for you. Enter into this space. And I don't know how long it takes for you on a given day, but I do know this. Effort in the Christian life is an effort to get humbled before God. That's it. So people like to ask me, where does obedience fit into the Christian life? Where does effort fit in? Here it is. Your only responsibility, God has made this so simple, is praise him. Thank him. If you cultivate a heart that is thankful for God's finished work, you've cultivated fear and trembling, and now you can work out your salvation because he's working on the inside of you. God doesn't work on the inside of a heart that's not grateful. He doesn't work on the inside of a heart that's not zealous. There's a word we don't use a lot. What about the verse in Romans that says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. What about Psalm 69? where it says, zeal for your house consumes me. That was a prophecy about Jesus. Those verses are not limited to charismatic people who know how to yell into a microphone. You might be hearing that and going, well, I'm not, I'm not like you. You're zealous. No, I'm not. This is not the real me. This is the me that has taken time in awestruck awareness of God and unleashed it. So if you see me on a natural average given day, I'm like, I'm not in awe of God, and I definitely don't feel like grabbing a microphone and inspiring people to follow Jesus. I have to work out my salvation, but that working it out is not, let me try harder not to lust, let me try harder to be more generous, let me try harder not to cuss, let me try, which gets increasingly hard when you become a parent, and, and, and then let me try hard, just being real, and then let me try, let me try. No, 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 my effort is I need to be filled what is, what is zeal for your house consumes me? My prayer before I stood up in front of you today was God consume this man today. Set this man on fire with a passion for knowing you, for preaching your truth. But that zeal comes from awareness of God. And your spiritual fervor lacking comes from your personal worship lacking. You don't fear and tremble at the sight of God because you haven't seen him lately. Last week I said humility is not a character trait to be developed. It's the byproduct of being close to Jesus. Here's what I didn't say last week. Write that one down if you weren't there. That's not my line, by the way. It's Louis Giglio. Humility is not a character trait to be developed. It's the byproduct of being close to Jesus. Here's what I want to add on. So is everything else in the Christian life. God has rigged this for us to need to be close to him to actually do it. So if I don't have fear and trembling, if I don't get myself to where I'm like, oh my gosh, God's working within me and I feel so small but so valued and so important right now, then you don't have the ability to walk away from that moment and obey God. So when you wake up in the morning, I don't want you to look at the Ten Commandments and go, how do I live like this? Do not do that. That's Old Testament law keeping. That's not the way. If you have the Ten Commandments up on your wall, I want you to put a number 11 there and put, don't make this your ambition. That's number 11. Wake up in the morning and go, my ambition is to get relationally connected with my God long enough to fear and tremble, and if I fear and tremble, the obedience will come. If I fear and tremble long enough, then I'm gonna wanna do what he wants me to do because I love him, and I'm in awe of him, and he's more beautiful than anything this sinful, broken, twisted world has to offer me. So good, but I will not see him that way until I've taken the time, the effort to get there. So how do you do that? The answer is a workout. My three points today are going to be a physical workout, and I'm gonna ask that you participate even, oh, I know you're so cool, you're so cool. You can't participate with hand motions in church. Yes, you can. We're gonna do this together, okay? We're gonna do this together. Look at the person next to you, say, work it out. Work it out. You ready to get your workout in? I'm gonna tell you how to do this. Is this helping anybody? Okay, work out your salvation. Point number one is step confidently. Step confidently. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Go ahead and write it down, note takers. I'm going to count to three. We're going to do this in rhythm. White people, watch me very closely when I do this. We're going to do this in rhythm, I said. All right? On three. Gabe, do you want to get up here and do this with me? Okay. All right, right. On three, we're going to step confidently, and that's going to involve a stomp into the ground, okay? One, two, three, step confidently. 
Love it. Let's do it again. One, two, three. Step confidently. I want you to learn how to step confidently. Here's why. Pay close attention, y'all. This is so cool. This is so cool. I can't believe God gave me this. If God is working in you to will and to act, that's weird and that's awesome. God is claiming through Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that he does actions through us where we participate by surrendering our will. Meaning, you have the ability to step confidently, to make a decision to do something in the Christian life and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not you doing it, it's God doing it. And that's really good news for everybody in the room who's confused about God's will. If you're confused about what school you should go to, what job you should take, what city you should end up in, what relationship you should say yes to, what partnership you should say yes to, look at me, look at me, look at me. You can make a decision and know that it's God doing it from within you. The only way you can do that is if you've cultivated a heart of awestruck awareness through fear and trembling, not if you've heard from heaven and gotten a word. If you've gotten your heart to a position of fear and trembling, you can step confidently, not being sure about what you're going to do because you're sure about who's taking the step. It's God within you. If Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the key to the Christian life, the only way to be confident that Christ is doing something through you is to cultivate what makes Jesus live through you, worship. So if you worship God long enough to get your heart in a position of surrender, now I'm stepping, and I'm stepping confidently because that wasn't me stepping, that was God. That's why Paul sounds so weird. He's like, it wasn't me, it was God, but it was me. It was, I'm dead, I'm a lot, it's, it's Jesus. That's what, you'll say things like that. You'll go, yeah, I made that decision, but well, I, now that I think back on it, it wasn't even really me. It was almost like God had consumed me. Exactly. He consumes those who have got in his presence and feared and trembled at his very presence. And so we got to stop thinking of the spirit of God as this mystical power that exists outside of us. We got to stop viewing our worship of God. Okay, he's up there and I'm down here. No, he's in here. And while we're waiting for God to do a miracle out there, God wants to do daily miracles through us. You know, every time you obey God out of a grateful heart, it's a miracle. Every time you follow one of the Ten Commandments, don't think that I'm anti-Ten Commandments. Do not hear that. Do not hear that. Anytime you do that with a spirit-driven heart of gratitude, guess what? Miracle. And the only way you can get your heart there is if you have worship. The battle is no longer to figure out his will. It's to step with confidence as he wills. As God wills, I'm stepping. And so now, please, y'all look at me, look at me. Act out daily miracles. Think of, I made a decision, and I'm confident that it was God making it, not me, because I worshiped, and I got my heart in awe. I've, what does David say? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Oh, that's what it means to work out your salvation, to be excited about Jesus again, to be bouncing off the walls in your spirit. This is the last thing on point number one. Pay very close attention in the Bible to the big S spirit and the low S spirit. God is dreaming about the day where the Holy Spirit and your spirit, little s, become one. What's someone's spirit? It's their countenance. It's who they are. It's their mind, their will, and their emotions. God's trying to make Jesus' spirit yours. And when those two become one, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and God's working from within you, and you can step confidently wherever, with whomever, into whatever, because it's him doing it. Everybody freed up? All right, let's get our workout in. Let's get our workout in. On three, step confidently. One, two, three, step confidently. Number two, I love this one. Discover capability. Here's your motion for this one. We're gonna be explorers. Excited, Connor? We're gonna explore. Here we go. You ready? Discover capability. Look at the person next to you. Discover capability. Okay, let's do them back to back. Let's do them back to back. On three, step confidently. One, two, three, step confidently. On three, discover capability. One, two, three, discover capability. If you're on the podcast, you're really confused right now. And we'll explain it to you later. Okay. Work out your salvation. That phrase, work out, means produce. Paul uses that word over and over and over again in the New Testament. Each time he uses it, he's using it as a means of personal production. Like do it, effort, continue. Like, come on. Okay, produce your salvation. That's not possible. You just told me earlier in this sermon that if I went to hell for six billion years, my sins wouldn't be paid for. How in the world can I produce salvation? You can't. And every time the Bible points you to an impossibility and gives you a dead end where you're like, God, I can't do this, it's intentional. 
It is meant to make you go, whoa, I can't produce my salvation. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. God wants you to see that your incapability is the perfect opportunity for him to demonstrate his capability. And what God wants your Christian life to be is less of this victim mentality where you go, I can't, I don't have the strength, I don't have the power. If, if God wills, he wills, but if not, I'm humble, I'm desperate. Listen, we cannot let desperation for God become an excuse for us to sit on the sidelines of participating in our faith. Someone who's humble enough to get in the presence of God is also empowered enough to live a confident life as they leave the presence of God. Because the presence of God never leaves them. It's within them. So here's what I'm saying. God wants you to get to the point where you're like, I can't do it. And we think the spiritual answer is, you're right, you can't. Jesus can. Sunday school, BBS, starburst. That's not the answer. The answer is God going, you can do more than you think you can because I'm within you. You, you think you can't do this? You actually can. Because you've just got to learn how to trust and discover that new level of capability. My oldest daughter, Aniston, the one that threw a fit in Publix over a sugar cookie, she's two years old, crazy, loves water, anything with water, anything, sprinklers, sinks, toilets, not necessarily to use but to flush and touch, um, anything with water. And so we're like, okay, anytime we're at the pool, She's so quick to like get in and jump in. So we were wondering like, what would it look like for her to do swim lessons? Even though she's two, I know that's weird, but we were like, well, she needs to be safe. Well, I was like, she's way too young. Like, I don't think she's ready for that. And then Courtney, if you know my wife, she was like, well, she's gonna do it because I want her to. And uh, that, that worked out with Aniston doing swim lessons. And so <laughs> no, I was like, submit woman, you're gonna do this God's way. And she... She rolled her eyes. And so um, she's getting swim lessons. And so we, uh, and I'm so protective over my daughter too, like overly protective. We were at at Chick-fil-A, Tiger Town on Friday, that little play area that should be a lot bigger and cleaner. Um, Aniston's like playing against a wall and she like starts falling back. And there was this, this boy who was, he looked around her age, who was kind of, they were playing together. And he was just trying to like catch her, trying to help her. But when he reached out to grab her, his hand went a little low. I stood up. I was like, bro, no. No, hand check. Watch it, Tucker. I don't, I don't even know his name. He looked like a Tucker, you know? It's like, Tucker. Anyway, I'm super protective. So when Aniston, <laughs> literally, the only name that came to my mind in that moment was Tucker. No idea why. Okay, so swim lessons. We have several AU swimmers who come to this church, so we ask one of them. Her name is Sierra Jet. She has a swimmer's name, Jet, and, and we're like, is she ready? And she's like, well, she is, but when I give her swim lessons, you guys can't be there because if she sees you, it's a crutch, and she's going to think, they need to come rescue me, and she says, and if you see her, it's going to be a crutch for you because I'm going to force her into positions where it's not going to look good. I'm going to put her in water, and it's going to look like she's not okay. She is okay, but she has to learn what she's capable of through failure. Like, if she fails again and again and again, you won't see it, and it won't look obvious, but she's actually growing her capacity and capability to do it. And I, like, I watched a couple videos from day one and day two. I was like, Sierra? My daughter is not old enough to be doing this. You need to, be, you need to be more helpful. Like, what is wrong with you? And then I got in the pool after one of her lessons, and I raced Sierra. Remember, she swims for Auburn, and we only raced one length of the pool. And I lost, but it was close. I lost by five body lengths, and it was, it was neck and neck. And so I'm questioning it. A week goes by, lessons every day, and then Courtney comes home and shows me this video. Watch this video. We'll put it on the screen. Those goggles, y'all. Those goggles. And it hit me. I'm looking at Sierra as Aniston, like, struggling. She's two years old, struggling, reaching for that wall. And and Sierra's sitting on her hands, like, literally, come on. Come on. You can. You can. 
And it looks, it looks like torture. It looks like this is not okay, but it's the only way to grow. And then Aniston reaches up, grabs that wall and looks up and she looks at her mom and she's overwhelmed by, oh my gosh, I'm capable of doing what I didn't think I was capable of doing. Now, you follow that into my, what I'm saying about capability in the Christian life. God knows you're capable of doing everything he's ever asked you to do because he put the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. Most days, it'll feel like you're drowning like my daughter, and God looks cruel because he's over there going, you can, reach up, grab it. You're not addicted to that. You are not conformed to that. You've got stuff that you need to work out, but I'm telling you, I put my power on the inside of you. I'm not gonna reach down from heaven and do this for you. You're gonna do it because it's me doing it within you. You're capable of more than you think you are. And if you'll actually activate your faith out of a heart that's worship God, you can produce salvation because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. Like, you don't have to be addicted anymore. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to fall that way anymore. And listen, if you drown a thousand times every single time because the Holy Spirit's in you, God's going to swim to the bottom of that pool and get you out. But when he pulls you up and you're spitting out the water that you're choking on and you're going, I'm so sorry, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. He's loving you and holding you, but he's also going, yes, you can. You can because I say you can. And what if we had Christians in this room that weren't so addicted to being victims of their own sinful condition but actually believed the life of Jesus was on the inside of them and go, I can defeat this. I can win this battle. I can walk away from that relationship. I can change my family's future. I can be different than my parents. I'm not just a victim of my circumstances. I'm a victor in Jesus himself. We're gonna discover capability and it's gonna be a beautiful thing. You ready to get one last workout in? Let's get a workout in. Here we go, here we go, here we go. You ready? No, we're gonna do step confidently on three. One, two, three, step confidently. One, two, three, discover capability. All right, last one. Number three, this one's fun. Accept responsibility. Go ahead and give yourself a little self-hug. Come on, it feels good. Let's do them all together one more time. One, two, three, step confidently. One, two, three, discover capability. One, two, three, accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. Okay, this is gonna be heavy. I do believe that a portion of this passage is a warning, a very clear warning that I've got to be, I've got to be as decisive as I can in saying what I'm about to say. If you're looking at your notes or you're looking at your phone or your watch, yes, I'm going long and it's okay because eternity is at stake right now. Look up at me. If salvation is past, present, future, and so many Christians are banking on the past portion of their salvation, I prayed the prayer. I remember. I did. I followed the steps. I, okay. But work out your salvation is the present state. You are working it out while God's working within. If your only evidence of your salvation is a past moment that you're banking on, and there's no evidence in the present that you are continuing to be saved, your future salvation, if you were to ask me today, does that count? Like, I don't, I don't do anything with what, I'm not really working it out in any way. I believe Paul wrote these sentences so that as they were reading this letter in Philippi, they would go, whoa, work it out with fear and trembling. Whoa, we have to do that? Yeah. If you're here and your entire spiritual bank account rests on a moment that you had a long time ago and there's no daily cultivation of worship, there is no gospel-driven effort, you are not a Christian. And your future salvation is up for grabs right now in this moment. To put it as bluntly as I possibly can, if you died today like my friend's father who did know the Lord and is in heaven, if you shared the same fate today, I believe you would go to hell. That's how serious these verses are. And that's why in a world of lukewarm, half-hearted cultural Christianity, we are a church that looks crazy to a lot of people because we realize that could be true about people sitting around us right now. When I say accept responsibility, this is a verse that goes, you have to accept your portion of what salvation means for your life. 
Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you and I partner with God. Some of you who are freaked out and you're like, I'm about to pray the prayer at the end of the sermon just to make sure you need to hear what I'm about to say. Our responsibility in the Christian life is not a transactional responsibility. It's a relational responsibility. So I'm not saying, hey, you might, you might be going to hell and you need to pick it up. You need to try harder. No, no, no. What's a relational responsibility? It means worship. It means awe. It means I'm loved by God and I'm actually letting myself feel that and express that. And what better moment to do it than right now? We're about to sing a song called Defender and my favorite line from this song is all I did was praise. All I did was worship. ACC, look at me. That's all you ever have to do. That's what I'm saying. Your only role is thank you. Your only role is hallelujah. Your only role is surrender. And now the overflow of that worship is my obedience because it's empowered by love, not duty. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Would you stand up all over this room? Put your notes away. No one moving. Eternity is literally at stake for people. If you're here and you're not sure if you've ever taken responsibility for working out your salvation, you've never said yes to that awe and wonder of living a life of worship. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. This is going to look like an uncomfortable moment for you, but I'm going to ask as we all close our eyes in this space, If you're here right now and you would say, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to accept responsibility for salvation, knowing that it's not my responsibility. God's already completed it. I'm going to worship in this space. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, would you just lift your hand right where you are right now? Would you just lift your hand? You're saying, Jesus, I want to give you my life today. Grace of God going out in power. Oh, Father, I know you see these hands right now. Oh, I'm so excited for them. I pray that they are not motivated at all by being afraid of you, but they're motivated by the love that you've shown on the cross. I pray that their simple acknowledgement with a raised hand would be received in heaven as them saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my stuff. I give you my relationships. I don't know how to work all of this out, but I know that you're working within to work it out in me. So Holy Spirit, come. God, thank you for the new beginnings in this room. God, I pray for every single person in this room who walked in believing that they are a believer and they are walking with you, but now they've been empowered to do so with fear and trembling. I pray that we would not spend every day trying to be good enough. I pray that we would spend every day worshiping you because you're more than good enough. You've more than provided. We're in awe of you. We stand in wonder at what you have done. We give you worship in this space. Let us respond like people worthy of the gospel. Let us worship like people who believe what we say we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.